Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Yuvaldal Kvist. And I'm Brian Kodak. And I'm Sadia Bhatti. We are your co-hosts <laughs> for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% vaccine hope. That's right, Lynn. Good old Lynn got her vaccine today. Exactly. Did any of you guys get it yet? Oh, no, I forgot you were under 80. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone thinks that we're all vaccinated tomorrow. I've gotten three text messages saying, like, when's your vaccination? <laughs> I, I was like, never. Yeah, exactly. Summer 2022. Well, I missed you guys last week. Great job on the interview. Thanks we for missed you. sponsor. Yeah, we did miss you. Interesting to have the person behind all of these articles. I mean, voice. You know, the, the voice. Yes, the voice. <laughs> the literal voice. Where in the world are you, Joel? I am for once. Well, I'm in London, obviously. No one's going anywhere still. But I'm at the office in, in Temple. Mm. I, I try to go in for mental health still every now and then, uh, which, which works out well. I'm generally very productive until I have to talk to you guys. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Where in the world are you, Sadia? Uh, I'm uh, still uh, not in London, but in my home in Cambridge, close to London. And uh, I agree with you about productivity. It's hard to be productive um, sometimes at home. So I'm thinking of going back to the office as well. Now that the official lockdown has been lifted in the UK, at least, you, you still have to follow restrictions, but it's less stringent than before. So in London, see. at least, I guess it's still tier three in mm -hmm. other parts of the country. That's true. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Where in the world are you, Ryan? I'm, I'm home. I'm still wondering if I'm more productive or if I, I want to do the math, whether I'm getting more hours in the day, rolling out of bed onto my computer and taking many, many breaks for a sandwich versus the commute, the suit and all those other interruptions and in which one actually is more productive mm, sounds like your professional biography the commute to the suit and all those other <laughs> yeah <distracts>. exactly <laughs> oh i love that I, I think in my case i think it's the the change the variety we, we, and that's the mm -hmm. problem if i if i do one one or the other too long like it's too many days in a row i get less productive i think doing like two days of rolling out from bed to desk and then two days of going into the office. That would be optimal if you could just choose freely. So you get a little bit of both. I get crazy when I do the same thing, which we all obviously have been doing on and off for all of 2020. We do like three weeks in a row where every day is just Groundhog Day and you do the same thing. Exactly. That, that, that kills me completely. Yeah, the change of space, that's the thing that's been difficult. Like you say, you know, just being the same for you know, walls, no matter how big your home is, I feel also it applies to everyone because you're still in the same space, right? Whereas before, yeah. at least you would walk out, commute, yeah. whether it was a train or I, I miss my commute. I can say it. I used to cry about it. I really miss it. Um, so, yeah, 
Well, hopefully 2021. I missed, I realized that the commute was my buffer time. I never thought about it that way, but that's what it was. It was my transitioning time uh, mentally from work to home. Even if I were on my phone or something else, it was, it was a transition and I don't have that anymore. I literally don't have that. You know, it's like, I, I, I close my computer, I go in the next door and it's my kitchen and that's, what's the transition? <laughs> <It's> like. <laughs> from you know? carpet to tile <laughs> yeah exactly and it's like okay you got to pretend that you're no longer at work and it doesn't work that way you know um, you're totally so, yeah. right and I, I think a lot of people don't really understand that specifically people not in our industry which is that that wind down time needs it mm. can be quite long where your brain is overly active trying to like manage a hundred things at once and then you turn off it, it's impossible really mm-hmm. yeah so so that's that's what I miss. Um, and just seeing people also, <laughs> you know, even if you're not talking to them, just physically seeing other people makes you feel alive in a way. Um, yeah. Although I have to say <laughs> it was really nice talking to you uh, when we met the last time and did this in person. But the, the sound level, so horrible. I actually, I prefer doing this like we are now and spaced out in different houses over Zoom than meeting you in person. The, the pleasure of meeting you in person is kind of neutralized by uh, the bat. <laughs> that That's would... hilarious. I think, imagine people saying that at physical hearings next time. They'll have physical hearings. They'll be like, this is so complicated. This is just, <laughs> online was so much better. Even conferences, segue, even conferences have, um, it is so much easier to organize them, to get people on board. And I feel like everyone's really getting used to getting used to this and the use to the availability and being able to log in and out and whatever you want to do. And it's and talking now. Ta- talking of conferences, guys, what are you guys up to soon? <laughs> Thanks for asking. Uh, Joel and I were invited by... Um, the Swedish Arbitration Association and the SEC that are co-organizing the third annual Swedish Law Day. Um, It usually takes place in Moscow, uh, sometimes in Stockholm as well, but um, it is a celebration of the connection between Sweden and Russia, uh, specifically in the arbitration context. And there's um, some fantastic speakers, uh, some mainstays in the Swedish market, um, but also they've invited some uh, Russian practitioners as well. Um, And Joel and I will be doing something that is long awaited for us on this podcast, which is interviewing uh, Kai Hobert as part of the program, but also hopefully we can record it. And I think we can and publish it as part of the podcast. Um, Oh, amazing. uh, Yeah. The first episode was about us working for Kai in some aspects. And now we're finally interviewing him. So it'll be a, a very cyclical moment for for us on the podcast. So we're and excited. The, that's next week. Uh, yeah, that's Tuesday the 15th. Yes, correct. And it will be about Kai's experiences where sort of bridging East and West and working in Russia. And he has a, a very interesting personal history that says a lot about the legal and geopolitical developments of uh, Eastern Europe in general. I think it will be interesting. We haven't really talked to him about what we're going to talk to him about, but I guess that's part of the charm. That's the podcast charm, no? That's the podcast (laughs) charm. Exactly. So that's going to be the following podcast. So what about this podcast, guys? What are we talking about this, this, uh, this week? Well, we do. First Um, of all, we have an interview with 
Uh, well, last uh, bonus episode last week was with the arbitration reporter, Luke Peterson. This time it's the court reporter, David Kasten, one of the most experienced, maybe the most experienced court reporters in, in the world of arbitration, who Brian and I have both uh, had hearings with. He is the guy who keeps the transcripts during large arbitrations and is in basically in charge. Maybe the tr most tribunals would disagree with that characterization, but in certain respects, it is David <laughs> who is in charge of the arbitration. We, we, we talked to him about his view of the arbitral procedure, basically, and the whole world of arbitration. He's, a, he's an interesting character. That's yeah. really exciting. It's, it's really nice. I, I feel like we have um, a nice uh, list of episodes where we interview non-lawyers also, which is getting very exciting. They and I asked such... him. I asked him a question on his insight into the the psyche of an arbitration lawyer. I don't know if it's going to make the edit, so hopefully it does. If not, uh, tweet at us, and we'll let you know. Amazing! <laughs> Looking forward to hearing that. Um, and then after that, um, we will address um, the new, exciting, actually. I think, uh, new Christmas outfits for uh, the ICC and the LCIA. They <laughs> both have their new rules. So we're just going to address those procedural changes as we're all nerds for procedural rules, aren't we, in arbitration? So I think it's good timing to address this, um, this, this modification of the rules, which will be in effect soon. Very, very good. I need actually a, a primer on this. We will not be talking about what everyone else is talking about because we are contrarian in nature on this podcast. We will not be talking about the recent judgment out of the UK Supreme Court on arbitrator disclosures, but we, we could and maybe we will, but maybe not right now because it's too too cool and we want to be a little <laughs> edgy. We're, exactly. We're usually ahead of the game on a lot of stuff. And this is actually, we did talk about double heading and multiple appointments yes. uh, for the same parties in earlier episodes. Um, and this, this, um, this case is interesting, but I think we'll talk about it at a, there at are a separate time. Nine or uh, 14 different seminars. One could attend webinars about this just in these, the, the next upcoming weeks. I think it's obviously a much talked about case. We will have reason to, to return to it. Exactly. And then we will wrap up with the happy fun time, which is the spinoff firms or the boutique firms uh, going into analysis on whether this is a new structure we should all be talking about. What are the benefits? What are the disadvantages um, and how they compare and stand toe to toe to some of the bigger law firms? And because yeah, I, should because we, I was going to say, because should we, should I we think just you put can... the spoiler, uh, just say that, that we have big news coming in Happy Fun Time, or should we break it right away? I kind of want to leave people hanging on the cliff. Yeah, we will. We'll leave them hanging. But Happy Fun Time is particularly relevant to one of the three people on this podcast. <gasps> Stay oh. tuned. But Looking first, forward to it. We have, it's first, right? We're doing David yes. first. Very good. Then we will now be joining David Kasten on the phone to talk about life as a court reporter. Okay. Yeah, this is the same setup I have for a hearing. So the quality is, you know, quite excellent the way I've had it all set up. And, and I can hear you guys perfectly well, too. So that's good. Good. It's very good. Yeah, we're okay. all semi-professionals. Yeah. Oh. I got the Sure microphone. You ever heard of these? No. No, they're excellent. They're about $150, and and I think the quality is 
quite good. So I think we're all set. Can tell. Yeah. If only council could do the same for every I remote wish hearing. They would. Well, the thing <laughs> that drives me crazy, they, they do have their headsets, which is what they need. But yeah. then all of a sudden, on the day of the first day of the hearing, they don't have them. They're not wearing them. And all of a sudden you hear that. <laughs> and I have to be the first person to jump in and say, Council, I can't hear you. Oh, but it was working the other day. I said, yeah, but you don't have your headset on. And then when they plug it in, they don't choose the right microphone setting. And all of a sudden it sounds like they're still talking into the uh, condenser mic. And I'm like, God, am I the only one hearing this? No. <laughs> no, but you're the only one speaking up probably. That's right. Yeah, I'm the, and this goes to you know some of the things we'll probably talk about. Um, I am the the front front guard of the record, and if I don't hear on the first time around, it is my duty to jump in and say, "Hey, I can't hear you," and because that's what makes the record. But but anyway, we, if we if we start from the beginning, David, for those who have not been inside a hearing room, be it a remote hearing room or a live hearing room. What is it that you do? What is your function, and who who are you in the in the normal setup of an arbitration? I'm a wallflower, but a wallflower that writes on a machine up to 260 words a minute in the form of steno. And I went to school, a special school that had a program uh, to teach you how to rewrite the English language into its component parts. And you have a keyboard that is consisting of, you know, consonants and vowels, not the entirety of the alphabet, but portions of the consonants for the left hand and the right hand and the vowels for the thumbs. But you go back and you start at the very beginning of how to identify a letter for each of the, each of the letters in the alphabet. And once you start to memorize how to write the alphabet in steno form, then you start to do with basic words, come, imagination, engineer, and so forth. And then you start building up the sentences and then going into long paragraphs and then increasing your speed. And so basically what it is, and, I, and, and some, a, a psychologist summed it all up beautifully uh, of how this process works. So not only on a steno machine, which is a, a technical device, but also the brain and what happens when you receive information. Um, hang on one second here. Yeah, I, I wrote this down because uh, this became something I always carry, carried with me for the past 25 years of what it is that I'm listening to, which may uh, be appreciated by those who are practitioners in this field. The, the words come into the air, into the temporal lobe, and they log themselves into the language center. And we must comprehend what is being said. Then the information gets rerouted to the prefrontal cortex, where we have to hold the information while the speaker continues talking. We have to analyze, integrate, and then synthesize the words at high rates of speed. Then the words have to go back into the cerebellum and convert the words into a different language. Steno. And that's where the schooling and experience comes in. And the brain's white matter slows, allows us to reroute all this information simultaneously without effort. Intelligence does have something to do with it, 
but it also has to do with diligence and memorize and memorization that you have to know what the foundation is of a group a word a part of a word or a group of words and once you grapple that then the rest starts to build as sort of like an upside down pyramid where the information becomes very top heavy it's like a foreign language because it's like a foreign language because when you learn a new language you do translate word by word and that path through the temporal cortex Mm -hmm. cerebellum is a longer process but when you just when someone says a full sentence in spanish and you already know what that sentence is without breaking it down word to word, consonant and consonant, that process of understanding what they're saying comes much quicker. Right. So you basically have learned a new language. Yes. And, but it's, it, but it's all still English to me. Right. I'm just <laughs> right. rewriting it into a different form that is now going to be implantation rather than a synthesis that is, you would normally have with a foreign language. Um, and so and when you have to write everything verbatim, you have to be sure of every little stroke that you push down on the keyboard in order to make those words come out. And this is where a love of language helps and also a constant learning of what do these words mean? You know, how do you develop your own sense of, you know, uh, vocabulary, uh, knowing etymology helps too. And, Latin in certain instances. So when you come to this uh, job and you want to do international reporting, um, it's important to grasp all of this together because then that's just dealing with the English language. You have a second component, which is going to be case-specific. And that's why we read documents, we read pleadings, witness statements, expert reports, and procedural orders so we can get caught up and know what it is that everybody's talking about. So while we have the English um, group at the top being the controlling mechanism of how we do our job, you also have a second group, and that is specific to that particular case. And that's where diligence and studying sometimes three to four weeks intensely for each particular hearing comes in, the hand, comes in handy. You've done quite a lot of arbitrations, haven't you? That must mean at this point that you're pretty well-versed in the world of arbitration. I am. I've counted them up uh, about three years ago, and I clocked in over 450 hearings since 1998. Uh-huh. And that includes everything from jurisdictional hearings, provisional measures, to merits, to annulment, you name it. You've probably done more than any other counsel or arbitrator, or at least the vast majority of the senior practitioners in the field. That's what I've been told. But uh, um, the one thing that's never surprised to me is I'm always learning something new with every single case. And uh, so it's, yeah, it's a constant learning process. But um, are you reporting in, in other contexts too, or are you, would it be fair to say that you are exclusively a, a, an arbitration court reporter? I've made myself a, exclusively an arbitration reporter because I've put in my uh, time working at the federal court, working in the U.S. Congress, the United States Senate. Um, I've done other work with uh, government agencies like the FCC and the SEC. And so, yeah, I've been around in Washington quite a bit. And, and that's the one thing I will give credit to uh, being here is the fact that this is the center of the world, or at least one of the centers of the world, <laughs> where 
if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen on a big scale here. And from the very beginning of my career up until today, that's, that has always been the case. If we, if we move on a, on a sort of a um, micro level, I'm interested in what, what your reality looks like in, in an arbitration, for example. You said that you would study in advance in order to grapple with a complex case and so that you're aware of the, the key cast members, the players involved, and also the specific terms. Correct. And then we get to the hearing, and I assume you are ready for long days. Yes. And yes. Uh, the parties are expecting, and the tribunal is also expecting, to have a live transcript running from the moment the, the chair says, welcome. Do you typically work alone yes. and sit through this, or do you split up in teams? I rarely split up in teams unless I've been given advance notice that the hearing is going to sit from 9 in, in the morning until... 8.39 o'clock at night. 12-hour uh, days are just brutal for any court reporter. And it's just not reasonable to expect us to sit there for 12 hours knowing we're going to have to come back the next day and do the same thing again and again day after day. And at the beginning of uh, doing these hearings, um, after Vivendi 1, which was my first big breakthrough with Ixid, um, I had realized that, you know what? I'm not the only one in the room who is human and we have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to prepare for the next day, just like everybody else does. And so what I consider to be a normal work day would be nine to six, nine to six thirty or seven. Um, but, uh, but I think the days of, you know, 12 hour hearing days have dwindled because people realize that, you know, we do have lives to live. We have to get on with our work. <laughs> Now. It feels you, to me like sometimes you can you can use the court reporter as a as an excuse as well, or or maybe the interpreters as the case may be, because the, the lawyers are are not expected to recognize that they need breaks, and you can say, oh well, because we have a court reporter, we have interpreters. Now we need a break. And yes, well, we sometimes that. they do, sometimes they don't. But it is uh, I have no problem with voicing up and saying, I need a break. You know, are we going to bring this to a close this evening? Because I want to go home, you know, and, and they all, I've, I've not had one resistance to that. Everyone's very appreciative of it, and especially with breaks throughout the day. And I consider to be a reasonable sitting time to be 90 minutes. You could push it to one hour and 45 minutes, two hours at the max, before your body starts telling you things. And so I, it becomes incumbent upon me to at request a break and or demand it depending on how if they decide to ignore me but that doesn't happen very often in international arbitrations they're very decent about it well you're the guardian of the proverbial the proverbial record so that's right if you if you say we stop we stop that's right <laughs> and it, it gives everyone a chance too to recalibrate because i know i understand the whole attention factor you know, where, you know, maybe arbitrators or others, you know, are kind of looking at the clock and saying, you know, when is this going to end? And you have to break it up. But also, mm -hmm. you know, we are human beings and we do have our needs and we want to get a cup of coffee. We want to, you know, take a comfort break and stuff like that. So it's real. It doesn't seem that your day ends typically when when the hearing is over because uh, it seems to be very common that you, you still send out a rough transcript after each day and then a is final transcript just, too 
and I have a team of editors who receive a portion of the transcript each day. When we get to a break, I will cut that particular transcript and the audio file that's synced up to it and send it to my editors, and they split it up, and they start go, they go back and listen to the audio and change whatever mistakes I made or paragraph correctly certain things, you know, the way I like things done. Um, so I'm usually the first person in and the last person out in a, <laughs> in a day. And so when I finish the hearing day, I go into um, proofreading mode of the transcript because by that point, my editors are already sending me back a polished up part for me to go through and check for words and, you know, just do scan checks and everything like that. They do um, a lot of the editing cleanup work. So by the time I can get you done, make a note, uh, can you make a note while you're transcribing like flag? I, I've completely missed this or, yes. okay. Or a word came up that was so out there that I, I just hit a steno marker um, and they know to listen to it again. And it could have been that someone mispronounced the word that I'd been seeing in the documents and I just didn't recognize it because if it's flying at 200, 220 words a minute, you know, you have to go with the wind. And uh, so... They <laughs> or it's in a foreign language, which I've yes. been with arbitrations yeah. with you. Yes. Where council's just throwing out foreign words left, right. You're like, wait a second. That's right. Or names. Yes. A lot of foreign or names. names yes. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I got I got a, some really funny stories in that regard, too. But uh, But... Generally, I am the first one in to make sure that everything is turned on, all the uh, iPads or laptops, whatever we are using for that particular hearing, that they're up and running, and that uh, I am prepared to go as soon as the president says, okay, welcome to day number such and such in the hearing, blah, blah, blah. So at the end of the day, I'm the last one out of there to turn everything off and then keep going another two to three hours to get the transcript done. And that's why I say the whole nine to nine routine um, is a thing of the past because that mean would mean I would be doing the transcript until 12 or one o'clock in the morning and then having to get up at five in the morning to come back in and do the thing, all the whole process again. And it's just way too exhausting. I do share, like I said, hear, hearings if I know in advance, but I think that uh, I prefer to work by myself because then I do not have to divide my attention to another court reporter and where we compare notes and everything like that. I can stay focused and know exactly how I do things and wish that transcript to look. And so at least I can focus all my energies into um, what I'm doing singly. And then once the hearing once the hearing's over, you already alluded to the final transcript. There's some work involved after the hearing as well in getting the final transcript, I assume. Then you send it off, and is that the end of it for you? Are you involved generally in the process that typically follows for the lawyers when they are fighting over details of the final transcript? No, no. no. And there are two uh, uh, things here going on. One of them is corrections. Uh, we are not perfect beings and we do make mistakes occasionally uh, with uh, putting down the wrong word, but those are corrections. The revisions are a whole different story. And that's where counsel have a chance to um, 
spelled the foreign words correctly, but they didn't get into those kind of battles, especially with German language and with Arabic. You know, you're going to have fine distinctions <laughs> between certain spellings, but that's totally out of my league. And so whatever revisions they wish to make, that's fine. Um, I think that it is a good process to have because if counsel want to rewrite something that they had said and the other side catches it, then it's like a check on them and being able to manipulate the record to make it sound as if, oh, well, I meant to say this and then try to slide it in as this is what I actually said. And this is where the benefit of having an audio recording is the backup proof to what it is I had taken down and put in that final transcript to begin with. And what are some of your pet peeves, David, when it comes to things that counsel in arbitrations or maybe tribunal members or witnesses or whoever it may be? Some, what are some of the things that would make your job harder than it has to be that you're complaining about when you go to court reporter happy hour drinking <laughs> sessions? <laughs> I definitely say interruptions are the worst. They are my enemy. I was raised in a military family and my father was an officer in the U.S. Army. And the one thing he said, if you get nothing straight in your heads, never interrupt and always be on time. And so whenever we did interrupt, we were punished, you know, backhanded, whatever. And uh, it taught us that it goes to manners. And plus, you can hear more and appreciate more what the other person is saying when you don't cut them off. And I know it's a natural tendency to kind of want to jump in either through nervousness or something else to want to you know continue the conversation but in a legal proceeding whether it's in federal court or arbitration and we're making a record and we have an army of interpreters that interruptions are our biggest enemy because then all of a sudden you got switching channels of the interpreters because they're not sure which way you know to you know keep their focus on what's going on then we get lost you know, and then we have to say, stop the process. But even in uh, all English hearings, the one thing I learned back in the federal court uh, when I worked for a judge who died in 1995, he was one of the meanest judges I've ever worked with. He said, David, you have to understand one thing. All the transcripts in my proceedings in court go up to the Supreme Court. And those transcripts had better be good or else you'll have to answer to me. And coming from a judge who was appointed by Richard Nixon, you usually don't mess with that kind of thing, and you take it to heart. And he says, you do what you have to do in order to make that transcript correct. And so that's what I've taken into the arbitration world. And, uh, and I do that with some uh, you know, really uh, hard-hitting cases, you know, where the expert or the witness and the cross-examining counsel are really locking horns and they can lock horns. I don't mind. I like a good fight. That's why I'm in this job, but I don't like it when they do start crossing because the words get lost. And so that's why it's my job to jump in and yell out because usually their voices are very tense, very high and very loud. I said, you're overlapping one at a time. And I say it with a rapidity and, and, and volume that it stops them in their track. And they all say, oh, sorry, David. Yes. And then that kind of <laughs> keeps them under control because they want those words down. And if I'm going to be held responsible, 
then I want to make sure that those words are going to be there and I'm the first one to make sure that everything goes smoothly on my end. Are you comfortable doing that? It sounds like you are. Or do you feel that it sometimes might be the job of the tribunal to also keep, keep order and keep check on the, the lawyers and the witnesses? When I used to work in the court, the judge always ruled and he had control of the courtroom. And the times when things got out of hand and I had to jump in before he had a chance, he controlled. But the arbitrators are more reticent to do something like that. And I don't mind taking that uh, onus to go ahead and try to keep control of the record. because. And I tell them, I said, you know, I'm making a transcript here. And that's the bottom line. I want it to be the best possible. But I figured, you know, I don't mind doing so. But I have to, the hardest thing for me is to stop what I'm doing on my steno machine and go into referee mode in order to get back control and then go back into the steno machine. And then on top of that, having to put on my microphone to say interpreter switch the channel after an interruption has just happened and in order to try to get it back under control. And with more than 450, I guess it's closer to 500 hearings at this point, if it was 450 three yes. years ago, yes. you, you must also have some, some favorites. You don't have to name any names <laughs> of either arbitrators or counsel, or maybe generically some characteristics or styles, pe- people, yeah. Yeah, styles, people you feel, oh, good, this person is chairing or this lawyer is lead counsel. Great, because I know they do X, Y, and Z that it's going to make it a yes. better hearing for me. Well, one thing I will give credit to... Uh, the the lawyers and the arbitrators and judges is that they are the best educated and the most fun to work with for me. They're intellectually superior to many of the counsel and judges I've worked with on the federal and even local state level. And that's because they have a lot more to handle. And I appreciate what they do. And I know that the impact of making decisions and arguing cases that amount into the billions of dollars um, requires that they have the best that they can get. And so that's why I feel compelled to do the best I can on my end to respect what it is that they're doing to make the transcript as good as I can. What about script reading versus free-flowing of ideas when you're speaking let's say you're delivering an opening statement i it must be easier for you if someone's following a script because it's more mechanical but does do do the ums and ahs and interjections and trails of thought get quite complicated to follow if someone's not following a script i think that speaking off script is the best way to communicate because it's forcing counsel to control what it is he or she is saying And the one thing I do know is that when you read from a script, you go into a robotic frame of mind, into a mode that is, uh, you know, you start reading sentences and the words start to blur. And, and when you have like a certain amount of time to get your speech done, like if uh, they say, okay, we're going to spend 35 minutes on this particular topic, um, then they have so much information that they try to read that it becomes a blur at certain times. And there is a psychological, I think, is a psychological difference, too, um, that it's almost like watching television as opposed to someone on a stage. 
that uh, you kind of get lulled into hearing this this stream of words coming out when they're reading from a tr- from a script as opposed to someone who's actually just talking to you as a human being. And so that's why I appreciate, you know, uh, openings and closings to be done from an outline, but yet talking to those who are listening to them. Hmm. And uh, when I know that uh, someone's going to be reading from a script, I, I strongly request a copy of it so I can follow along. Because what I find that even simple words, uh, what we call word boundaries, where one word ends with the letter T and the next word begins with the letter T. Or like if you say, I can't tell or I cannot tell, that all of a sudden even simple little distinctions like that can be blurred because Mm -hmm. they are just like zipping through as fast as they can. So I thought at least if I have the script there, I can look down and see what it was that, that I had just heard and then just keep right on going. What are some of your war stories, experiences that you will remember from hearings? I guess now, like for most of us, there's less rock and roll when we're all working from home and the hearings are a bit less fun in several ways. But I would imagine you've also traveled a little bit and and seen a few strange things from the inside or maybe even outside (laughs) of hearing rooms. I certainly have. Um, I'm trying to think... Uh, one of the hearings I did back in, um, let's see which was, I think it was in 2006, we had a string of uh, two-week merits hearings for over a course of seven months. And uh, in one in particular, we went 11 straight days and sitting until 7, 8 o'clock at night. And I was, I was a little younger then, and so it was pretty, pretty strong. But even that started to become difficult for me. It got to the point where I started to become so tired that I just could not really think anymore. And I think it was on the morning of (laughs) day eight, we went until like nine o'clock the prior night. And I had to get up at uh, six o'clock and I went in to brush my teeth and I grabbed out of the uh, medicine cabinet my toothpaste or what I thought was my toothpaste, (laughs) squeezed it out of my brush, put it in my mouth, and all of a sudden I realized... I had put Neosporin onto the toothbrush. Ooh. Now, because of that, I realized that the case had been so chaotic and just wiped me out that I couldn't even think straight, even when I was out of the hearing. But that's just on a personal level. Um, I would say that in hearings themselves, they've been moderate, you know, relatively calm uh, and well controlled. But there have been times when you know the typical. Um, fighting breaks out and that's when the tribunal gets involved I'm trying to think have you ever left the hearing room and done sort of a site visit transcription or something like that sure Uh, have sure have (laughs) I went to the Amazon back in 2015 no way (laughs) and I I was asked to go in a very big case to do site inspection uh, where they had experts testify about yes this is you know, contaminated. No, this is not. And we went down there for about three days of actual on-site uh, hearing. And so I made a special table, and you know, I had my steno machine on it, and I had a field uh, mixer that was wireless hooked up to the videographer, so I can get a sound feed. And uh, and I have to say that was the greatest experience of my life because not only was it 
a chance to walk and steno at the same time, but also <laughs> to see the uh, the wildlife and to hear the wildlife in the background. And even my editors who were listening to the sound files were amazed at what they could hear, the howler monkeys and the, the swallows <laughs> and, you know, all sorts of, you know, sounds. And, and it turned out to be one of, I think, the best experience of my whole career. Did that make it into the transcript with like brackets saying <laughs> swallows no. screeching nearby? <laughs> <laughs> but, but one time, yes, we had a hearing uh, in 2009 where over 100 lawyers were in the room. We were in the basement of the, the World Bank and, um, and the witness was testifying from Italy and he had a little dog in the room, but no one knew this. And he was testifying and going on and on and, and all of a sudden something must have startled the dog. I think it was a poodle or something. And the door opened, and all of a sudden the dog, in the middle of his uh, answer, he, the dog barked as ferociously as you can imagine. And the whole room broke out laughing. And so I put a parenthetical in the transcript that said, dog barks and laughter. <laughs> <laughs> you do have some artistic discretion, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I have um, a question out of left field, David. Mm-hmm. How does one become a court reporter now, and and what is the sort of the professional outlook for the field? Are there young people coming up, or is it just such a narrow field that there are barely any positions open, and it's hard to get a job in it? Well, it's a pyramid. Um, you have uh, a lot of uh, students who are going through virtual learning, and it's un- it's sad that we're in that condition now that we have to. Uh, do things virtually, uh, and when you're learning, it's even more complicated. But in the old days, like when I started uh, court reporting, I had uh, mentors who would take me on jobs with them, and they would instruct me, and I would watch what they would do, and and so it was a good person-to-person uh, learning experience. But here it becomes a little more detached, and so there are a lot of students who are going to court reporting programs but they're doing it online and and they do have to start you know somewhere in the field itself but it takes about 10 I'd say 10 to 15 years to reach the level of international arbitration and to get them to that point they have to learn procedural um, and other um, aspects of the job in order to get to where we are in international arbitration um, I have I have one last question, and yes. then Joel, if you have anything else, my one last question. I mean, the point of us, we we have been interviewing a lot of practitioners on this podcast, and our, our point with this season was to get an outsider's perspective on the industry. So, uh, you didn't touch on the intelligence factor, which of course can vary from person to person. <laughs> but is there any other from from you? You know, you you mentioned how many different contexts you were in with federal court and in these teamsters. So is there is there a specific personality type, if you could be like a personality test and assign these like initials to it, is there something you notice of an arbitration practitioner that is unique um, to, to the field? Not any different from what we do in like federal, uh, congressional right. or other venues. But I do have... So there's to... a lawyer mm-hmm. funnel. <laughs> yes, there's a lawyer funnel that true, very true. Um, let me think on this for a second. Well, it's fine. It was just something that I had on the top of my head. No, it's it's good 
because now I'm I'm starting to think back to uh, what it is that really makes the court reporter perfect for this job. And oh, okay. Even it, a better question. Yes. And I think it goes to those who had learned to play the piano and the mechanisms of the brain and the eye and the ear and the hands for playing the piano. Those mechanisms are no different from what we use on the steno machine, except for the steno machine, we're dealing with words, letters, and sounds, as opposed to music and piano, where you're hearing chords and arpeggios and compositions that appeal to the soul. This appeals to the rational side of people, because you have a point to make. You have a case to bring. You want to hear it, you want to explain it, and you want a decision on it. So in that sense, at least if those who have gone through um, piano training, they will have the inbuilt mechanisms ready for them to transition over to steno. So I and it that bridges to the legal field, I guess. It's that strive for absolute attention to detail and nothing falls through the cracks. Right. So I guess we're similar, you and I. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yes, and and it also comes to diligence. Uh, you know, you have to, if you're not sure of something, even you don't know the definition of a word, look it up in a dictionary. It goes to discipline as well, you know, on simple things. Um, I have a fondness for reading uh, dictionaries and also the writings of Dr. Samuel Johnson, you know, and, and even going all the way back to reading Homer, all the way, the whole gamut of of literature, I love it. Because it always expands my brain. And so I always encourage people, please read. Read all the time. Because you'll never ever learn everything there is in this world. But at least you give yourself a head start by doing so. By you know, brushing up your etymology lessons and knowing your vocabulary drills and improving your grammar skills and punctuation and everything like that. Because it all counts. Oh, what a beautiful note to end on, I think. The, the poetry of... Of court reporting. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, David. This has been very educational, a very interesting perspective for us to, to hear someone else's take on something that we are wrapped it up in every day, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Thank it's you. unfortunate that, you know, we also see life come and go, too. I'm still uh, devastated by the death of Johnny Veter because I had my first hearing with him in Methanex versus the United States back in 2004. And from that point on, I consider myself to be one of the luckiest court reporters to have gotten to know him and to work with him. And it was always such a thrill, you know, every time he was the president of a tribunal. So, oh, so our co-host Sadia actually spent a few minutes reading out uh, a long quote from one of his articles just a few episodes back. He's a, he's a hero to many in the field, I think. Yes, absolutely. Good man. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much, David. It was a pleasure. <laughs> All right. Well, the new LCIA and ICC rules, um, they both have a new set of rules, and now we thought it's interesting to discuss them, uh, starting with uh, maybe first the ICC rules. No reason to start with the ICC rules than the LCIA rules. Please don't read uh, into that any sort of preference whatsoever. Um, the 2021 ICC rules are coming into force on the 1st of January 2021. 
which is going to be a much better year than 2020. Um, and this will be the third recent change to the ICC rules that were previously uh, revised in 2017 and 2012. So say that pretty um, recent change actually from, you know, from 2017. Um, now, as you can all imagine, uh, one of the significant changes was in light of us all doing stuff electronically. Um, so I'm gonna address that um, without waiting is the virtual hearings element. Um, so now it is clear, before it wasn't as clear, but you know, it was still possible, but it is clear that the tribunal can hold virtual hearings. Article 26.1 has been rewritten to make this clear. And in doing so, it weakens the implied presumption of a hearing under the old rules. So before um, the hearing, uh, the, the, the provision was when a hearing is to be held, the arbitral tribunal giving reasonable notice shall summon the parties to appear before it on the day and at a place fixed by it. And now uh, the provision is a bit has has changed a little bit and adding this paragraph, the arbitral tribunal may decide after consulting the parties and on the basis of the relevant facts and circumstances of the case that any hearing would be conducted by physical attendance or remotely by video conference, telephone or other appropriate means of communication, whatever those might be, like hologram or, you know, who knows what's going to be the future. <laughs> I um, wish. I'm sure people are like, no, we can't just put video conference telephone. It will be something else that we don't know about in a few, you know, months or something. Teleportation. Teleportation. Yeah, exactly. Like Star Wars type. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's that's the one of the, the key changes. Um, now, uh, other types of changes, and here um, we were talking earlier in the intro about duty of disclosure and disclosure and conflicts of interest. And I think this has been a key also part of uh, what the ICC has addressed in this new rule. Um, disclosure of what? Disclosure of third party funders. That's also, I think, something we discussed in earlier podcasts, whether or not we should disclose the identity of a third party funder. It wasn't in the rules before. It is now. Article 11.7 of the 2021 rules address it specifically um, that, and I quote, in order to assist prospective arbitrators and arbitrators in complying with their duties uh, under our, uh, Article 11.2 and 11.3, which are the arbitrator's disclosure obligations, each party must promptly inform the secretariat the tribunal and the other parties of the existence and identity of any non-party which has entered into an arrangement for the funding of claims or defenses and under which it has an economic interest in the outcome of the arbitration. Wow. Think, yeah, the, so interesting. Right? Only the existence of a uh, funding agreement, no details about the not the terms. contract or the terms, yeah. No, it doesn't say the details. Yeah. And in fact, usually it's, you know, these things are pretty confidential and I don't think they're relevant to the conflict of interest, the details of the arrangement. The fact that you have um, a funder in itself, I think it's for the identity of the funder more than, you know, how much money the funder is giving you, et cetera, um, or, the, or the type of arrangements. Um, Interestingly, this is not present in the LCIA rules. I'm not going to talk about the LCIA rules right now, but this is just one of the things that's not in there. It is in the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center rules. It's really interesting. Um, disclosure to keep on going on this. Uh, so we third-party funder. 
Um, but also um, there's an additional uh, point uh, mentioning the conflict of interest that arise from a change in party representation. So council. So now actually, uh, and this is actually modeled on the LCIA rules and the 2014 LCIA rules, the new ICC rules requires parties to disclose changes in their representation. And more significantly, they provide that the tribunal may reject a party's preferred legal representation under Article 17.2. So that's something new as well. Um, and in fact, I'm gonna quote it because I think it's interesting. Uh, the arbitral tribunal may uh, once constituted and after it has afforded an opportunity to the parties to comment in writing with a, within a suitable period of time, take any measure necessary to avoid a conflict of interest of an arbitrator arising from a change in party representation, including the exclusion of new party representative, representatives from participating in whole or in part in the arbitral proceedings. Um, in the same vein, uh, and I think that's also very interesting, is the new Article 12.9, which provides the ICC with extraordinary powers to appoint the entire tribunal, notwithstanding any agreement between the parties, to, and I quote, avoid a significant risk of unequal treatment and unfairness that may affect the validity of the award. So again here, uh, very worried of the conflict of interest. I think this new article refers to um, an event that happened before the French courts in the 90s. There was a Supreme Court, uh, the Cour de Cassation decision under the Dutco case. I don't know if you guys, it rings a bell to any of you, um, but it was about um, you know, the equality of the parties to appoint arbitrators. And I think this is really interesting that the ICC has written specifically that notwithstanding the agreement of the parties, if the, if they decide that, you know, the appointment process is unequal and unfair, then um, the tribunal can, um, can appoint. What was like, what's an example of an unfair process? I mean, typically you would agree or typically it would be in the rules. So what, how would it become unfair? It doesn't, uh, so, it doesn't say unfair, does it? it says exceptional circumstances, which is even broader. Uh, it said actually to avoid a significant risk of unequal treatment and unfairness that may affect the validity of the award. So in the in the Dutco case, what happened is it was before the ICC rules permitted multi-party uh, appointments of the tribunal. So you uh, had, right. so there was one party um, of a, I think on the one hand, uh, uh, one party to a consortium and then uh, respondents were two of them. And so um, each appointed one arbitrator you see, right. and so right. it was it, the the court de cassation determined that that was un, unequal because they weren't on equal footing, because gotcha. one party appointed only one arbitrator and the other there were two um, two entities. So in that sense, it would be probably more fair that the court appoints the whole tribunal as opposed to giving you know an unequal. I th I think that's that's what it means. But be nice to to see the commentary on this. Um, also just try to, to go a little bit fast because there's a lot in there, but there are some new provisions on consolidation and joinders, um, which, are, uh, which are interesting. So the, for, for the consolidation provision, it was first introduced in the 2012 amendment, um, but it used to be a bit unclear whether proceedings involving slightly different arbitration agreements could be consolidated. Um, and it's now under article 10 um, that it's specified. 
Um, and about the joinder provision, previously joinder was only possible before the appointment of the tribunal unless all parties agreed to the joinder. And now Article 7 actually permits joinder after the appointment of the tribunal under the new Article 7.5, uh, um, and the joinder may be permitted after constitution of the tribunal provided the joint party consents. So you don't need the agreement of all the other parties, I think is, um, is, uh, is interesting. Um, now, another one, which is a bit of a hint to something we had already discussed in one of our previous episodes on liability of arbitral institutions, if you guys remember. Um, here, there's a, a forum selection and choice of law clause uh, specifically for disputes with the ICC. <laughs> so uh. if there's a dispute with the ICC, there's a dispute resolution clause. What do you think it says? I think it says think? Uh, the, the Cameroonian courts, right? Where, where, where was it? Yeah, you're not far. <laughs> you're not far. You're not far. What about you, Brian? What do you think? The Kenyan courts? No, about which courts would be competent to set. I mean, it could be the Kenyan courts. Why not? Uh, oh. To settle any disputes <laughs> because it's a French involving. Institution, it is obviously any court in Paris, Paris. or some court in Paris mm. somewhere, right? Yeah, French law that's... applicable to the dispute. That's right. No surprise here. Governed by French law, settled by the Paris Judicial Tribunal, Tribunal Judiciaire de Paris in France. Hmm. So, yeah. Now, something else um, that I think was uh, worth mentioning is that there are new provisions referring to investment treaty arbitration also. And these actually highlight that there's been an increase of treaty-based um, cases under the ICC rules, which uh, a lot uh, of people tend to forget that the ICC rules also administers uh, treaty cases. Um, and so it, there's a provision specifically uh, under Article 13.6, for example, that says that the arbitrators uh, cannot have the same nationality of the parties for treaty-based cases. Um, and also that there can't be any emergency arbitration for treaty-based cases. It's something I wrote my oh. doctorate on, more or less. On uh, what? On well, on the applicability or and use of commercial rules in, in treaty-based cases. And it's out ah. in, a few, in a few months, I think, in a, in a bookstore Ooh. close to you. And I'm, it's a bit unfortunate in that sense, because I talk a lot in this book about the emergency arbitration in treaty cases. And mm -hmm. now, obviously, the ICC sort of changed the game a little bit here, because before this amendment that is now entering into force in a few weeks, it was a bit un uncertain whether or not the ICC rules actually allowed for emergency arbitration in treaty cases. And their intention, it seems, was to exclude emergency arbitration from treaty arbitrations. Uh, but the wording in the old rules was so confusing that people still tried and there were some pretty significant uh, like commentaries, including former Secretary General of the ICC, Andrea Carlevaris, who argued that actually it should be available uh, just reading the wording of the ICC rules. So I think now they have closed that potential opening by saying explicitly mm -hmm. that you are not, uh, you cannot have access to emergency arbitration if, if the consent to arbitration is based on a treaty. But what's the rationale for that then, Joe? Why do you think that is? Uh, I, I think it's a reasonable one, as I actually argue in the book. It is because the treaties typically were entered into when emergency arbitration didn't exist. So unlike in a contract, you know, the, the ECT, for example, provides for mm -hmm. SEC arbitration. The ECT is from 1994, and emergency arbitration just started happening like five, seven years ago. 
So I think it is reasonable then if you're looking at it from the state's perspective that they consented in a treaty and they could not have consented to something that did not exist at the time when they consented. Mm-hmm. So you can't even ag- agree for it later on, though. Well, specifically, you can. I mean, in, in a separate agreement, of course. And that's the, in mm-hmm. unlike the ICC, the SEC allows for emergency arbitration in treaty business. Yeah, and I was their rationale say the is like you, you have consented to the SEC rules as they evolve over time. So it may be that emergency arbitration wasn't available when you consented, but you consented to SEC arbitration, and we have to interpret that consent like dynamically. And if the rules evolve, so does your consent. Exactly, Which, well, especially yeah. if you think that your consent was uh, is an open offer, isn't it? Like a lot of people have said that these treaties are this mm-hmm. open offer that can, the consent can be perfected by the initiation of arbitration. So if emergency arbitration started and you had all these treaties providing for it under the ICC rules, then you should have taken to exclude it. But that requires a lot. What about the practicalities of emergency arbitration under institution under uh for states and investment treaty arbitration. Well, I, I don't think Is that a reason to speak against it? I think so. And I think there's some, some commentary in the, in the context of ICC as well that, that says that this is not, this type of procedure is not optimal for, for state respondents. Uh, so that's it's another not reason. possible. <laughs> yeah. And I think well, because, I, because, because of access to documents, et cetera, you mean? Yeah, and the time frame. I, I can't remember exactly on the ICC rules. It's a 15 days, I think, an emergency arbitration is supposed to be to be concluded. Under the SEC rules, it's five days. And, you know, it, mm-hmm. you've all worked, you've both worked in, in cases involving states. It's, it's kind of hard for a state to do anything with a five to 15 yeah. day frame, much less like put up a defense on, on the substance of an of a Or even figure out through. who is going to represent you, you know, yeah, just yeah, figuring exactly, out. Exactly. And then so, have you know, a public has... tender for your law <laughs> No, but even internally, like figuring out who is the ministry oh, yeah. competent for those things and because there's a budget and so on and so forth. So it takes forever, even before even hiring lawyers. So um, I, think, oh, yeah. I think all of this probably played into the ICC's decision to now make, make it explicitly, abundantly clear that you cannot use the right. ICC emergency rules in treaty cases, unless the state specifically, of course, consents to that after the dispute right, has arisen, right. but I don't think that's a very realistic, practical scenario. Right, right. No. But about your consent point, then why is it different from, you know, virtual hearings or anything else like that you yeah, didn't think a, about at the time? It's a great discussion. And I, I actually, <laughs> this we're not talking for this particular segment on my dissertation topic at all, but I think it's an interesting discussion because where do you draw the line? Like how, how far can you mm. as a state be deemed to have consented to letting the institution develop the rules further? Is there a qualitative mm-hmm. difference what the, what the institution can do within the frames of your consent? And I think creating emergency arbitration is, is getting somewhere close to that line because that is something yeah. that is very, it's like a new kind of arbitration, essentially. What if the institution mm-hmm. came up with something like really extreme, like mandatory, I don't know, mandatory plays of arbitration or they change the, the rules for how the arbitrators are getting paid or... But they can, in theory, they can do whatever they want with the rules. And if you consented a long time ago, you're still bound by that consent. I think somewhere you have to draw the line. But it's mm-hmm. largely academic, I think. And I don't think online hearings, for example, are uh, are an example of that. 
Okay, well, that was that's an interesting point, um, I think. Um, and I mean, there's been other changes in the ICC rules as well, but I'm not going to mention all of them. One thing that I do think is worth mentioning is the paperless aspect that we talked about in our previous oh. podcast. So presumption is now electronic submissions. Hallelujah. And unless there's a requested, you know, um, by one of the parties to have written submissions. So yeah, so that's good. That's a nice development. Um, now the LCIA rules. Uh, now the LCIA rules, just to be fair, I mentioned in my intro that these rules will be applicable in 2021. That is only the case for um, the ICC rules. The LCIA rules were actually amended on an, um, they came into force on the 1st October of 2020. So they're already into force. Um, and they, so the revisions happened right during the pandemic. <laughs> they were the first ones, I think, to change during uh, during the whole um, pandemic. So obviously, obviously, they also address the same, um, you know, topics related to, um, you know, electronic uh, submissions, like I just mentioned. Uh, the LCIA rules have removed all but one reference to paper. The default is also now electronic service. In fact, now you need prior written approval uh, to submit documents to the LCIA in a non-electrical, uh, electronic form. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. For that, actually. Ex exactly. So, so good. that's good. Yeah, that is good. That is good. That's uh, that's how it should be. Now, of course, you know, we talked about this before in our paperless uh, segment. You, If there's a requirement of, re I mean, this is actually submission. Sorry, I'm talking about submissions. So about Article 26.2, the EU awards, uh, the awards may be signed electronically and or in counterparts and assembled into a single instrument. So, you know, that's also a development in the LCIA rules. Now, of course, this can be adapted in, with respect to national rules if they require. There's a or signature or something to that effect. Um, virtual hearings, also similar to the ICC rules, uh, they made it could, uh, there were always a mention about virtual hearings before, um, but it's just been amended a little bit now to mention these, um, you know, um, just the, the tribunal's power to do it again. The arbitral tribunal shall have the fullest authority under Article 19.2 under the arbitration agreement to establish the conduct of a hearing, including its date, duration, form, contact, procedure, time limits, and geographical place, if applicable. Um, and um, as to form a hearing may take place in person or virtually by conference call, video conference, or, and then again, mentioning this phrase, using other communications technology with participants in one or more geographical places. So um, that's that's an interesting interesting thing that we've seen around. There's been a codification of tribunal's power to expedite procedure. We're talking about emergency arbitrator, but here this is a little bit different. It's about expedited procedures um, and uh, where it was provided for before, but now there's a list actually of what the tribunal may do um, uh, to expedite the procedure, which is interesting. Um, that's under Article 14.6. Nothing, you know, outrageously new, but it's nice to have it in written form. Like, for example, limiting the written and oral testimony of a witness, limiting the length or contact of, a, of any other, you know, statement, um, employing technology to enhance the efficiency and expedited conduct of the arbitration, uh, deciding the stage of the arbitration at which any issues or issues shall be determined, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's like a summary dismissal of claims. Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. This brings me to the famous Article 22, 
which mentions the early determination of the arbitration, which is the equivalent of the summary judgment um, in the US. Yeah, early dismissal of cases, exactly that you mentioned, which is now expressly codified uh, in the LCIA rules. Um, same kind of um, provisions with respect to consolidation of proceedings in the ICC, although I would say that they go a little bit a step further. Um, the LCI rules provide that proceedings may be consolidated in circumstances where there are various applicable arbitration agreements, um, but they provide specifically that that can be done where the dispute arises, and I quote, out of the same transaction or a series of related transaction, uh, even if the parties are not identical. So this is uh, similar to the approach taken under um, the SIAC, uh, sorry, the Singapore International Arbitration Center rules or the SEC rules, the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce rules. Um, so there's obviously a need to um, enable uh, this consolidation of claims and to make it more efficient um, going forward. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the main things that I've jotted down here for the two rules. Um, it's exciting. To go back... To go back to your point on the um, the procedural tools that a tribunal can use to make proceedings more efficient, I actually yeah. appreciate that because if you look at kind of this to tie it to this due process paranoia concept that has floated around in the past couple of years and how arbitrators are very unwilling to limit some sort of like a page limit in in some fear that there will be some due process violation by not allowing parties to fully explain their their arguments in a post-hearing brief or, or what have you, or, or saying, yes, you can raise that objection, but only bring it, you know, only two sides uh, or exchange of one round of submissions or something like that. And I think that will give tribunals under these rules a bit more um, force. If yes, I may, so. the devil's advocate, Brian, just because I, yeah. I want to. I think there's some, I, I understand you're obviously right. That's a very good point that, that it, it, it gives some comfort to arbitrators. If they have enumerated power, specifically in the rules, they would be comfortable using those tools, but they do have those tools anyway. I think that's an uncontroversial starting point, right? That they, they, they could do this even before it was in the rules because it was in the general powers. And as soon as you start enumerating what they can do, you create the problem that you also have to think about the in the implication exactly right. like you start saying they have a general power and then you like list 19 things then there are almost by definition going to be things that aren't listed and then you could draw like a, a contrario uh, well it's not an exclusive list you know so, but there's also making no, the I know, last this one is, is making this, yeah I, I see the practical points i'm th i'm my my objection is more of philosophical in nature when it comes to the drafting of rules and this might be the swedish slash sec uh, background that i have that i that i prefer <laughs> to keep the rules short and then you let the tribunal in its discretion figure things out because as soon as you start it's like yeah. codify things. You are on a slippery slope and the rules will end up being 400 articles long because you're trying to anticipate every potential situation rather than just saying the tribunal has the broad power as it sees fit to deal with whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you do, think, you start, you start refer. Oh, sorry, Brian. I was just, I'm, I'm a little bit with Brian on this. Is that it, it, I think it gives comfort to the tribunal first of all, to, to do those things more. Even if you say you've got discretion to do it, then you have to justify it, right? In your award, you have to refer to the fact that this is completely okay for you to do. Um, I mean, obviously reducing a page limit should not 
normally in people's mind uh, result in a challenge to an award for abusive conduct of the arbitrator. Oh, but, it shouldn't. Uh, and the fact that you put it in the rules is an implicit acknowledgement that it might. And that's, I think, what I am um, having mm. issues with. Like, it, we st- it's, it's too much, like, hand-holding where it shouldn't be. Or, or they're just examples of how you may expedite the procedure. You but know, then these could are you examples. put it into some, like, secretariat note on guidance of using the yeah. words. Yeah, which, which 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 existed. You're right. I, I am with you here as well. And just to get this record straight, I agree with you, and I am not criticizing the choice to do this. I am just for no, the, no. For the sake just... of good content, I'm just trying to, to disagree every now and then. No, of course, but, it's really interesting. Well, it's the same debate as for the early dismissal, uh, right? I yes. mean, the, uh, the it's it's specifically in the in the LCIA rules. And when it came out uh, in the community, like specifically written, I think it was the SIAC rules that uh, in 2016, or it was a couple of years ago, right? That they mentioned this uh, early dismissal of cases. Then the SIAC was like, yeah, you can do that. It's so important. And the ICC were like, well, you could always do that. Yeah, exactly. That's like, <laughs> it's a strange thing to get, yeah. get the institution telling me as an arbitrator, I can do something that I assumed I could do already. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask whether you guys thought that these rules have done enough for a full, you know, a releasing a new set of rules or, but it sounds like you think they've gone too far. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's the, not to, the, to be the things. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, L- the, the LCA has described its own rules as a light touch, you know, it's a light touch. It's, it's right. you know, enabling certain changes that were an issue. I, I think the, for example, the issue of, um, of submitting multiple requests for arbitration when you have different claimants under different agreements, et cetera. This has been clarified also, the consolidation point, the joint, these are a clarification. And um, and on the, I really much, I welcome the paperless aspect of it, to be honest as well. I think it's it's not just a detail, it's very important. Yeah, that's, um, now that's whether, a... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Joel. Go I was going to say ahead. that that's actually a very good way to summarize it as well, that, the, that the, both major institutions are embracing paperless arbitration, which is something we should be very appreciative of, I think. Mm-hmm. We're not going to name and shame, but I'm sure there's some institution that should learn from that. <laughs> a bit of modernization wouldn't go amiss. <laughs> exactly. So this is it, guys, trying to keep a uh, segment under uh, the um, regulated 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> Let's see how we do. It's time for uh, announcements during Happy Fun Time. Here we go. Now on to Happy Fun Time, where we will discuss spin-offs and boutique firms. Uh, the, the reason why this has come across our desk, which I have basically forced across our desk, is that I've uh, taken on a new role. I have uh, left the big law firm and I have joined a new boutique international law firm called MB Camp LLP. Uh, It's fully operational already in Hong Kong and now I'm um, leading the charge to be joined by a few other people to be announced soon um, in London. And so we have, and we're doing corporate and also doing uh, litigation and arbitration, both investment and commercial. I'll be doing the same old thing, just under a different umbrella. So this got me to think, especially since I'm, you know, on the ground floor of actually opening a firm, getting a bank account, et cetera, um, (laughs) of what are the perks? And I've really 
you know, I molded over with a bunch of people before taking this position and I continue to hear feedback from people after I've taken the position. Um, and I would love to hear your guys' thoughts and maybe I can give you some insight about the other side of, you know, you, we see, we initially saw boutique firms pop up because of conflicts. Um, you would see a partner go for 20, 30 years and then they'd say, I'm getting conflicted left, right and center by my firm. I want to take arbitrator appointments or what have you. And then they start, their own boutique with another heavy hitter in um, the industry. But now we're seeing it more and more. Um, we're seeing things pop up, not only as spinoffs from big firms, um, but also, you know, if you talk about like a Three Crowns or um, Volterra Fieta and then Fieta, and then you have these firms that have spun off and also started as boutique firms. Um, mm -hmm. What are your biggest conceptions? And maybe I can make them misconceptions about a boutique firm going against kind of a big firm for work in, in the international arbitration sphere? Hmm, that's a very good question. Um, it, it's, it, I, I think it depends on the client's perspective, right? If they're sometimes, I think they're more comfortable going to a full service firm that handles right. all the aspects of the transaction maybe. Um, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's, that's why you would choose a firm, you know, say they hire, um, you know, us, you know, for example, just to take an example, is that do we yeah. have the same clients that we've helped um, on other matters and tax matters and MA? It happens. I have to say it has happened, uh, but it's not, you know, of course not. It's not 100% of our business and arbitration is not just our existing clients. Um, so that's one of the things I think. Well, yeah, and I think you're right. Um, not only if you're talking about the competent side of the practice groups of your firm, but also just the logistics and resources mm -hmm. of, you know, if we're getting into some of these bigger cases, you need to have a firm that can handle these, these bigger, these bigger disputes and these bigger clients. But mm -hmm. there's also a niche for smaller clients. And also to have that competence, I think you can really zero in on what competence your corporate clients really need. We're not taking on individual clients except for the Mikulas uh, or, or, you know, some of these like investors, but um, you, you know, these corporate clients are going to need, like you say, a bit of tax. They may need to just, you know, some sort of contract reviews, corporate M&A work, and also to get into their litigation and litigation finance arbitration. And, and I think if you kind of hone in on that cross section, which what we kind of are thinking that we can handle, you could really service um, your client. Um, in the way that you want. Logistics aside, because of course, that's a whole separate discussion. Um, mm -hmm. I think there is kind of a business model that these smaller firms are finding, especially that are multidisciplinary. To clarify the multidisciplinary aspect, we're talking about smaller firms that do more than one thing. We're not talking about arbitration boutique firms that do only arbitrations with like a lean team of exclusively arbitration lawyers. Yeah, but we could talk about that as well. I'm just um, <laughs> trying to get the, so that I can I can follow along. That's not what what you'll be doing now as as partner in this new venture it will be some somewhat more diversified than, than arbitration only yes we have to be you have to be a bit more nimble in your practice in order to you know i'm studying to qualify as a uk solicitor to be able to expand the scope of work that i can be able to do but i will be focusing on in, you know international arbitration still but the, is the firm itself focused on arbitration only or no? It's a more, it's a full service. No, it's mostly yeah. corporate uh, out of Hong Kong. And then the London will be the right, kind of focus understood. on arbitration. 
Okay, okay, um, okay. So and then the paddle back and forth will be basically do is it contentious, non contentious, transactional, and it'll just ping back right, and right, forth right. between the offices. Yeah. But okay. we will have a lean team in arbitration. So to go to your you know, to switch to what you're talking about, Joel, is you know, it you're looking at three partners and one or two associates handling any arbitration and multiple arbitrations that come across the desk. And the question is, are you prepared to be able to handle that? And I think COVID has taught us that people are getting much leaner on their teams and um, you are able to, to handle a lot of it, particularly because you have much less uh, work to justify your position at a firm. Because if you have a couple of cases, you're able to cover your overhead. Whereas at a big firm, you have to juggle six, seven. I mean, Sadia, I can't even imagine how many cases you have at once. Yeah, yeah that, that's the, I think that's the, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's uh, it's one of the, um, the negative parts of being of a, of a big firm is that of course you, um, you handle maybe a lot more cases um, because, you know, but, but at the same time, when we say we handle more cases is the team. It's not just leaned yeah. as an individual. So the team is is bigger, right? I mean, we've got offices in in Paris, in London, and others that do arbitration outside also of these two cities. Um, so we can spread out and have more people in it. And and so that's that's the that's the question also. If if you're bigger, then you have more people that can handle yeah. more cases. Whereas if you wanna you know, if you start as a spin-off, I mean, you know, we're talking about, I don't want to talk about specific firm, but here's an example is you were saying three crowns or three crowns of boutique. I mean, they're huge. Not also, an, I wouldn't, yeah, not anymore. No, they were. Right? Yeah, the same as <laughs> yeah. Believe and, and uh, Libby Kaufman Kohler as well. It's, they're, they're not really boutique. Yeah, exactly, right? So word. I don't know what boutique means. Maybe it's because you're only focused on one particular, like you were saying, Joel, you're just you're just doing arbitration. Um, right. And and so you're focused, you're a specialist in, in that respect. Um, but log- you said logistical sides, you know, apart. I think logistically, it makes a big, a big uh, difference. Not necessarily for who knows, maybe it, do, it does make a difference also for the client. But, you know, if your firm can handle all the, you know, <laughs> the, you know, printing, which also is a thing of a past. Now I'm saying it out <laughs> yeah, loud. Exactly. I realize it. Right. Because there is like, oh, we've got this whole department that can, you know, bind documents for you and yeah. file internally and yada, yada, yada. Do we do we need that now? Um, is it, is well, we even at, we, when I was at Winston there, we outsourced a lot of that. Um, because we didn't mm-hmm. even have, you know, even at bigger firms, if you're a satellite office of a bigger firm, you're not going to have those resources either. And you have to, you have to outsource. And I think the, the agility of a smaller firm is to be able to kind of plug and play the people that they need at the times that they need it versus internalizing 10 teams, just in case you need that. And that's what big firms really need to justify their status in, in the market. Do you mm-hmm. have this do you have a business development team? Do you have, you know, a, a robust HR team? Do you have printing? Um, are paralegals. You, yeah. Paralegals, assistants, secretaries, you know, all of these things mm-hmm. when you are really busy need to be internalized into the firm. And then the overhead is just, you know, crazy. Yeah. you've got And you look at people. chambers, mm-hmm. you know, you look at chambers, chambers is a perfect example of a, um, it's definitely a ground up operation, but they are finding resources if and when they need them. 
And I think that's a much more streamlined model than some of these, you know, bigger firms are, are having to deal I'm with. I'm so happy for you, Ryan, not just because you're a partner now, just the, the, the first first of the gang to die, as I uh, texted, <laughs> sounded much worse than that is. I think it's impressive that you're the first partner of my close friends. I'm very happy for you, but I'm also happy for you because this feels like something you would be very good at, this kind of environment where you have to, to wing things a little bit more, be a bit more entrepreneurial and to come up with solutions rather than fit into this very large machine that is the, the big law firm that's that's running in a very particular way and you have to like fit the mold. I think your, your Californian uh, go-get-em side will now <laughs> be rewarded. It's- but it's difficult. And I think in the legal profession, we are, it's very focused on your skill set, especially at each stage. And if you ever feel like you have something else to give to the firm, it has to be like a massive business case that you have to sell to them in order to, to get there. Even this podcast pitching it, I mean, Asadi, I think you had an easier time than I've had. Um, at Mannheimer, it was amazing. But the, the, that was, if you ever wanted to do something different, I mean, the, the firm like looks very quizzically at you and, say, and the burden is on is you to justify any kind of deviation because it's, it's about your exactly. time and by extension your and the firm's money well the, i think it comes also from the fact that the bigger the firm is you know the more partners there are the more decision makers there are right so if you mm-hmm. do address a question to them then everyone has to say i mean it's not it's true everyone has to be okay i'm okay with that that's not going to be a problem for me it's not going to create a conflict for me. It's not going to have any adverse um, impact on the firm and my practice. And seriously, are people really going to consider those questions for little things like, you know, I want to go to that conference or I want to go to that, you know, I want to do that podcast or whatever example. Um, yeah. And maybe the safest option is is because it's so big and, you know, it's, it's just too you know, either have you go through all the loops and approvals and et cetera, which certain firms do, um, or just say no. Or, of course, there are firms that say yes and support and help you. And I'm really grateful that I have such a firm. But you know what I mean? Like, it's not, I understand why it would be more difficult for a bigger firm than for an entity such as yours now. Where, yeah, you're you're right. I mean, these firms aren't doing it just to, you know, for fun. They have these policies in place because they have to think about everyone else's considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, something that we're going to put a pin in for a later conversation. Something like you know having employees, maternity leave, uh, mm-hmm. all of these, putting people in conferences, buying books. That's something that's going to be really difficult for us. That a big firm is going to be able to handle and absorb because they have you know the revenue to do so. But to be able to kind of maneuver your way up will be quite cool. But it's not taking away from how big firms structure it because they are really working on it. Even when you try and pick a client, like a big, you're like, oh, the, the firm won't let me do this because of conflict X, Y, and Z. And I feel really like frustrated. And and that's the name of the game though. And there's, it's, it's there for a reason. And they, the people at the top get to decide because they've worked their way to the top, but it, for someone who maybe has an eye on a bit more of an entrepreneurial perspective and seeing a law firm as a business, it, it could be quite cool to go the boutique route. But I also think that it's like a path. So it's really hard mm-hmm. probably, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but to start upfront in this kind of outfit because you need to have the contacts, the experience, the establishment by going through you know, the more traditional model in a way before you go solo. 
Um, you're right. Yeah, it's not not going solo. Solution. Obviously, you're <laughs> you're not going solo. But what I mean is, you know, the to take a, a separate example, like engineers, you know, they they work at Apple and they work at Google and Facebook, and then they're like, oh, I'm going to create my own, you know, uh, startup and stuff. You know, there's this, you know, different corporate structures and how you're going to structure your company and how you know how it's all going to fund itself and all that stuff are considerations that actually partners have to think about side by side to when they're actually doing their work. And it is, it is quite difficult when you bog down a partner with, you know, massive amounts of cases, massive amounts of firm responsibilities. And then at the, on the other side of it, make them operate a firm that's like efficient and like has good economies of scale and can justify itself. It's like, uh, mm. really difficult. And they're not, we're not like, no one's trained to do this. It's, uh, to yeah. seeing more of this, Brian, though. I think you are, <laughs> if not trained, I think you're in a good position to do it well. And I'm sure we'll hear more about it on the podcast as you try to figure out all the practicalities of actually running a law firm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Looking forward <laughs> to, uh, back. <laughs> to hearing about when uh, this became um, a huge firm or, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's so popular. Slowly uh, but surely. We'll get exactly. there. But thank you. Thank you guys for indulging me in this. But I think uh, it is something that we're seeing more and more often. So I don't think I'm just tooting my own horn on this. And I think no, 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 absolutely. I think uh, it's consider. crazy. There's so much movement happened in the past um, weeks and months alone, actually, if you look at the legal market, I think uh, COVID being one of the yeah, absolutely. of if you know, if not the, the main reason, but at least uh, an accelerator for these things to happen. Um, yeah, Natalie Voser started her new firm, which we're very happy yeah. to see. Yeah, exactly. And also, like, there's a huge question mark on do we need physical offices now to function? You know, I mean, that's we haven't been in an office in the past year for some of us. Yeah. Um, do, do we need one, you know, and, and is, it, is this the future of, of law firms? It changes the whole game, too. Right. Mm -hmm. You see all these news about firms moving out of their premises in London For example, you know, they used to be at that address and now they're moving because of the rent and so on and so forth. So I, I, I'm looking well, that's forward a, to seeing what that... But that's that's a good consideration because the, the whole prestige aura around a firm and where your address is and which tube stop you get off of in London, are you close <laughs> to this other firm and da 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 is yeah. crazy, but it, you know, it exists and that's something that we'll have yeah, to we're compete We're selling like, a, like an immaterial thing, a service you can't really touch or, or de determine. No. You, have, you have to come up with other things to, to justify people paying a lot of money for something that you, you can't see or touch, basically. <laughs> You're right. And clients say that, they're like, why am I paying for this beautiful view? Yeah, lower your fees. Yeah. So beautiful I don't have beer. to pay for this fee. <laughs> Are this beautiful, uh, you know, 16th century chandelier for some firms in Paris, <laughs> yeah, which exactly. I will not name. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with a view on the on Place Vendôme. Yeah, uh, exactly. yeah, exactly. No, no, that's that makes sense. But like, but some firms, you know, it's it, like you say, you gotta dress, you know, accordingly. Dress so, to impress. Dress to impress. So. A conversation to be continued, I think. Yes, definitely. So before we check out and thank Callum, our researcher, Jan, our editor, and each other's and each other's parents and relatives and professors, we should thank <laughs> Investment Arbitration Reporter, I Reporter, our sponsor for season five, an online service focused on international investment law with a team of expert analysts that offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, IO Reporter launched a new content feature, 
a searchable data set on more than 1,400 ISDS cases, including party arbitrator and counsel information, to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies use IA Reporter for current awareness, due diligence, and conflict checking, visit iareporter.com. And you also have a few more days if you are interested in becoming an IA Reporter contributor as we talk to Luke Peterson, the editor, uh, no longer the editor, actually, the founder and publisher uh, of IA Reporter last week. So if The you- man. Exactly. <laughs> the voice. The letter. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank Thank you. you.